go ahead and begin. Well, welcome everyone to our continuing study of Genesis. And what I'm hoping that we're beginning to see that the Bible from Genesis all the way through the end of Revelation is not just a set of books, not just a bunch of stories put together, but is a unified and continuing saga, a unified and continuing history of God's pursuit of his original intention as we see in Genesis 1.26. And so everything in this Bible, especially that follows Genesis 3.6, is God irrexorably moving persistently and passionately toward the recovery of that which he had begun in Genesis 1 and 2. And I believe that Everything that occurs in the rest of the Bible from Genesis 3, 7 on all the way to the end in Revelation 22 is present at least in theological form, in conceptual form, in Genesis 1 and 2. And so as we read our Bible which we're going to begin to see this morning. It is critical not to read these stories and these events and about these people, whether in Genesis, Romans, Isaiah, Ezra, 1 John, wherever it is. Not to read these in isolation, but to read all of this Bible within a context that everything that we are reading Everything that is occurring, everything that is being said by God and from God and pursuant to God's purpose is in microcosm, is in seed form in Genesis 1 and 2. I have a great desire, and I think it's the Holy Spirit's desire, that we see our Bible as the grand unfolding, an absolute perfect unity from cover to cover, as they say, from cover to cover. And that wherever it is you go in the Bible, and whatever it is that you are reading, there will be something about those passages that you will be able to find and discover. They are the outworking of that which is in Genesis 1, 2, and three, as a result of the fall. So I want us to make sure that as we go through Genesis, we're not just going through information and seeing some interesting things here, but that the Holy Spirit is showing us, this is my word, my total comprehensive word that you need, that I give to you to know me, to know how to come to me, to be saved, and to be sanctified. Is it everything about God? No, because everything about God cannot be put in a book. But it's everything that we need to know about God that he has revealed to us. Nothing more, nothing less. Amen? So again, thank you for being here. 
It's our prayer that this has been not only an encouragement, but it is the Holy Spirit expanding our horizon of this grand canyon of revelation, this Bible of ours, this book of books. Father, Father, how great you are, how grand you are, how wonderful you are. And Father, how do we know this? Father, we know it because first you have revealed yourself to us, not in a general way through nature because we know that that's already there, but you have revealed yourself to us specifically through the pages of this book. As your spirit has enlivened us and saved us, and Father, how do we continue to know you? We continue to know you <clears throat> through the pages of this book as the Holy Spirit continues to reveal and unfold you to us and your ways to us and your purpose. As you give us understanding, as you give us experience, as you touch our feelings, Father, as you do a total work in us, conforming us to your dear Son. Father, thank you for this. Father, we pray that this study will absolutely change and revolutionize our understanding, our appreciation, our submission to, our joy in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning now, we're continuing from Genesis chapter 3. And remember, Genesis chapter 3 is a recording of the fall. You remember in Genesis 3, 6. What are the last three words of Genesis 3, 6? I repeated it maybe 38 times. And he ate. I make the demarcation there. With that decision to eat of the fruit of the knowledge of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, with that decision, Adam rebelled, rejected God. And the entire world, the cosmos, the universe, and all of mankind were plunged under the curse, were plunged with, into the, the, the destructiveness of sin. Sin suddenly and completely permeated everything. It didn't take a while for sin to gradually kind of get from one man to another and get into the rocks and get out into the universe and get to the farthest star out there and do this. Immediately when this occurred, this universe, this cosmos, all of mankind were immediately plunged into the grip of sin. So in Genesis 3, we get the recording of the fall. God's plan for man and his image. What is God's plan? That we should be in the image of God. Has been interrupted but not destroyed. Now always remember that. If this activity of Adam was not able to destroy God's plan and purpose, it interrupted it but it interrupted it under the control and knowledge and the foreknowledge and the forbearance of God. So it didn't even interrupt it apart from God's knowledge ahead of time. It interrupted it. 
but it interrupted it according to God's purpose. It interrupted it within the context of God's will. But it didn't destroy it. Why do I emphasize that? Because too often, we as believers may commit a sin or may walk for a season in some issue of sin and feel as a result of that that we have destroyed God's purpose or capability or work in our lives. It ain't possible. Can you say amen? If Adam couldn't do it, who are we? If Adam couldn't do it, we can't do it. We're simply not greater than the grace of God. It doesn't mean that you ignore sin. It doesn't mean that you think less of it. It means this, that when we do sin, we deal with it according to God's purpose and allow Him to continue His purpose in us. So His plan was interrupted. It wasn't destroyed. Remember what happened? Adam and Eve were expelled from God's garden temple. They were expelled from the garden in Genesis 22 to 24. They were put out. What's the result? Rather than ruling as God's agent, man became ruled by Satan. And I want you to listen to these because this is pertinent to us today where we sit in this room this morning. What happened because of the fall. Well, this is just a few things I felt the Holy Spirit give to me. I'm sure it's extensively more involved than this, but at least these things. And make sure that as we go through this, you and I apply this to my life, to your life, because this is universally true for mankind and for the cosmos. Rather than ruling as God's agent, man became ruled by Satan, and I have Scriptural, do you have Scripture in your notes? Scriptural notes there, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, 1 John 3. If you don't have that, 5, uh, 8, you don't, don't have some of those? Well, okay, 2 Corinthians 4, 4. I'm going to go through it quickly. 1 John 5, 19. 2 Timothy 2, 6, uh, 26. First, sorry. 2 Timothy 2, 26. 2 Timothy 2, 26. And so... Satan now is ruling man through his fallen flesh, now weakened and corrupted by sin. Rather than nature yielding to man for his provision, remember nature was to be the servant of man. As a result of the fall, now nature resists man's efforts. Remember, by the sweat of your brow, thorns and thistles, remember in Genesis 3.18. Rather than the earth being filled with the light and life of God, it becomes filled with darkness and death. Rather than marriage being a relationship of mutual love and service between a husband and wife, it becomes a relationship in which one seeks to manipulate and the other to dominate. Rather than the rule of God filling the earth, Satan becomes the God of this world. Rather than the earth being the place of God's dwelling and blessing, it becomes polluted by the curse. And see, God has to intervene. Why does God have to intervene? Why is it mandated that God must save the world? Because you see, if he doesn't, he's not being faithful to himself in his creative purpose. He creates with this purpose. I am creating to make man in my image 
after my likeness. Remember Genesis 1.26. That's what I'm doing. And if he fails to get to that purpose, for whatever reason, God has failed. So there's nothing external to God that mandates that he must do this. The mandate upon God is the integrity of his own decision, freely made within himself. You know, some have said, well, if Jesus hadn't died, we would be going to hell. If Jesus hadn't died, we wouldn't be here. There wouldn't be a creation. Because God's creation of this world necessitated the absolute requirement that Jesus, the Son of God, come in the incarnation, die on the cross, be buried, be raised, ascends, is glorified, exalted, sends the Holy Spirit, saves the church, and brings the church into a new heaven and a new earth. All of that is a requirement within God according to His own purpose and the integrity of His own Word that that will happen when the Word says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Everything else from that point, verse 1 in the Bible, is absolutely set forever. Amen? So don't ever think these funny thoughts. We have a God who is unequivocally, comprehensively, completely, eternally in control of everything that is going on, has gone on, or will ever go on. Amen? Yes. So let's talk about God's means of recovery. Because after Genesis 3, 6, everything else is about recovery until we get to Revelation 21 and 22, which are the two chapters that show us what is the result of everything being recovered by God. From Genesis 3, 7 all the way to the end of Revelation 20 is the recovery. Genesis, uh, Revelation 21 and 22 is the grand result of the recovery. Do you see how our Bible is put together? Everything in the Old Testament anticipates him who will recover. The New Testament is a record of him who is here, who does recover. And Revelation 21 and 22 is a result of what that recovery, uh, uh, you know, is a result of the recovery. That's how you need to see your Bible. That's how we need to see it. So the means of recovery. Man falls, but God is ready. I sin, but what? God is ready. When you sin, what? Come on, say it. God is ready. Every time I sin, what? God is ready. Every time something's going on, God is ready. Every time something goes wrong in my life, God is ready. God is always ready. Can we deal with that? How do I know that? Sovereignty. Sovereignty. If God weren't sovereign, we can't say he's always ready. Now, there are questions about sovereignty that I don't get, and there's some issues that really bug me, but I know God is sovereign, therefore he's always ready. Amen? He's always ready. So don't let the devil play with you. When things are happening and you're not sure, you yell out in the face of Satan who would say something to the contrary. You are a liar. My God is, has been, and always will be what? Ready. Right? Let's get some backbone about us. Let's deal with the enemy the way we're told to deal with the enemy. Stop slinking around and bending underneath it and worrying and wringing our hands. God 
is ready. Amen? Amen. Amen. Keith told us to pray for boldness, so I prayed for boldness. God is ready. In 3.15 and in Genesis 3.15 and Genesis 1.28, God promises that the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, these two seeds will multiply and fill the earth. You get the promise in 3.15, you get the mandate in 1.28, and these two come together. And through this mandate and through this promise, God is going to bring about the fulfillment of his purpose. You see, the seed of the woman and the serpent will multiply and fill the earth together. But that, through the seed of the woman, why two seeds? The seed of the woman will be God's people. In the seed of the woman only, God will bring forth one man, the second Adam, who will crush the serpent and recover God's intention. So what are we doing? We're looking at the rest of the Bible within the context or through the window of these two verses. <clears throat> the rest of the Bible will show that God's promise in 3.15, I will put enmity between your seed and the woman's seed, and he, the seed, you're going to wound him on the heel, but he's going to crush your head. I like that. I like that idea that the seed of the woman is going to stomp on Satan's head. I don't know how you feel, but I like that idea. And how is that going to happen? Through Two seeds, the seed of the woman, the seed of Satan, certain, the serpent, multiplying, growing together, and filling the earth. It's going to happen side by side. This means that there will be, listen to this carefully, because there's a whole lot of folks out here who don't like this idea. Why? Because Satan doesn't want them to. This means that there will be two types of humanity upon the earth who will experience enmity or a clashing or a strife. There are only two types of humanity upon the earth. There's not three. There's not half and half. You'll be either of the seed of the woman or you are either of the seed of the serpent. One or the other. There's only two types of humanity upon the earth. The seed of the woman, who are they? They are the people through whom God will accomplish his creative purpose. I'm part of that seed. Anybody in here join me? I'm part of that seed. God is accomplishing his creative purpose in me. Is he in you? Do you feel it all the time? No. But is he doing it? Can you say yes? Yes. We can be excited in here about this word. You know, we can occasionally raise our voice a little bit. You won't bother me. The seed of the serpent, who are they? They are the people who will oppose God's purpose in his people. 1 John 3.10 tells you that. The children of God and the children of the devil. The children of God and the children of the day. Oh, how narrow. How narrow-minded. How bigot. Yes. You see, I'm a racist. I am a racist. I have been transferred out of the race of the seed of the serpent into the race of Christ. Any racists in here? Any racists? Don't be afraid. I'm a racist. I'm narrow-minded. I'm of the seed of the woman. And not of the seed of that serpent. I've been brainwashed. Been washed by the blood of the Lamb. So, you know, when they tell you all these things and they say that, you know what you do, Nick? You're right. You're right. You're right. Don't be offended by anything out there. We are the people of God. Amen? You see, these two seeds will exist and grow together. But being opposed to one another... Even as the wheat and the tares, remember when Jesus in Matthew 13, 
the wheat and the tares are going to grow together. And don't pull them up because you're going to pull up some wrong ones. Let them grow together until when? When the harvest is made, when the harvest occurs, when God brings about the whole harvest, and he himself being the only one who can identify who is a tare and who is a wheat, who is a sheep and who is a goat. Only God the Holy Spirit can do that. That is not our job. We can identify what we think of some issues here in fruit, but we cannot say unequivocally who's what. We can't say that. We're not called to say that. If you're not sure, we pray and we evangelize and we share. But only God makes that determination. And on the day of judgment, when will the two be separated? God will take the tares of the goats before the white throne judgment. And that's a condemning judgment. God will take all the wheat or the sheep and bring them before the bema seat of Christ. That's a judgment not unto eternal damnation, but a judgment into the heavenly throne dealing with whatever issues of sin that may have been analyzed as God for the last time and unequivocally forever washes that activity out of us and we go into heaven with him. You see, because we're forgiven when we stand even before Christ in the Bema seat. We're forgiven, but God will deal with that. A good verse for that, I think it's at 1 Corinthians 4, 5, I think is a verse for that. 2 Corinthians 10, I should have written some of these down. What is the other one? I think it's 2 Corinthians 5, 10, I think is the other verse for that. So they're going to exist together, and they're going to be opposed to one another. Listen to what Paul says in Galatians 5, 17. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these two are opposed to one another. They're going to be two opposite opposing teams or types of humanity upon the earth. One is for the purpose of God, and one is unequivocally contrary against the purpose of God. Therefore, in Genesis 4, we should expect, and we do immediately see begin to see the distinction between these two seeds. Immediately in Genesis 4, we begin to see this as, as the writer, the Holy Spirit, through Moses, begins to show us just a sketch of some of the things that are going on. This is not a comprehensive history of all the world. It is a sketch and is a history of the two seeds, primarily of the seed of the woman as it advances and the seed of the serpent as it attacks and tries to oppose the advancement. So the Bible is the history of the seed of the woman coming to fruition in the incarnation and then through the church as it is posed by the seed of the serpent. So people and issues and activities and nations that have nothing intrinsically and immediately to do with that opposition aren't in the Bible. And anything and anyone in any circumstance that is intrinsically involved and centrally involved in the movement of the seed of the woman to its fruition is in the Bible. You see what God has done here. Because people say, well, where did Cain get his sister? You know, where do they do? I don't know all that. All I know is this. God is only going to tell us about those people, those circumstances, those situations that have to do with the promulgation of his purpose as it is opposed by the seed of the serpent, showing us that in spite of everything, God gets to where he wants to go. He's not dealing with the history of the world. The Chinese aren't in here. The Indians aren't in here. The Guatemalans aren't in here. The only people who are in here are the people of God and those who impact the people of God. 
This is a, an isolated or a restricted, a specified history of God's work. So we have two types of humanity in Genesis 4. We have the line of Cain, which is marked by death. And we have the line of Seth, which is marked by righteousness. Immediately in chapter 4, we begin to see the demarcation, the great separation in the two lines. We have the line of Cain, marked by death, destruction, rebellion, rejection, murder, sin. And we have the line of Seth, which we'll see at the end of chapter 4, verses 25 and 26. And we see that that line of Seth is marked by righteousness. Now, that does not mean that nobody in Seth's line ever sinned. It means that the hand of God is upon this people, moving them according to his purpose toward his goal, toward the fruition of what he's doing. And in that people, he is dealing with their sin redemptively. In the line of Cain, these people are rebelling against God, want nothing to do with him, and God has withdrawn himself from them to bless them for his purpose. And so we see a two opposing people here. In verses 4 to 8, I'm sorry, in verse chapter 4, 1 through 8. Now Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, and by the way, in the Hebrew, there's a slight suggestion that Adam and Eve thought that this was the seed of the woman who would bring about the, uh, the restoration of all things. Remember, I will seed of the woman and he will do this. Remember that? There's some indication here, some hint in the Hebrew that this couple thought through this naming of Cain that this is the one who is going to bring about the restoration. So we don't know. It's not told. We can't speculate. But could it be that Cain was told, you're going to be the man. You're the man. You're the man. Remember that in just a moment. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard or acceptance for Abel and his offering, but, the Lord and, but, the, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. He didn't accept it. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. How many of us see that every day in our children or in ourselves? Our face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. And Cain spoke to his brother Abel, Abel his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother and killed him. So what do we see here? The birth of Cain and Abel is recorded without any indication that there is a distinction between the two brothers. All of a sudden we know what? There's Cain and there's Abel. Now, what is the distinction between the two? How do we know? We know it by the, by the fruit of their lives. We know it by how they relate to God in their worship. The primary way we know the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent is not by their deeds among men, but their heart toward God, which produces their deeds among men. Can we get that straight? When we see deeds among men within the church, that's great. But some of it may or may not indicate their heart toward God. 
What God is looking for, obviously, is our response toward Him. How do we regard Him? How do we hold Him in esteem? What do we think of Him? How do we relate to Him? And this is where we see the distinction in these two. And the result is that the one who relates to God in God's way produces the fruit of righteousness. The one who does not relate to God in God's way produces the fruit of unrighteousness. So Jesus says, you shall know them by their fruit. What are you going to know? You're going to know whether this person is of the seed of the woman or the seed of the serpent. That's what you're going to find out. And the seed of the woman, all of these people, the seed of the woman, those are the people, we are the people who are moving in God's purpose for His purpose, and all the others are moving against God's purpose, opposing His purpose. No matter what it looks like on the outside, no matter what we're asked to do and how we're asked to relate to these folks, there is an opposition here, and I think we need to be very careful how we do this in our secular world today. But there's a distinction becomes apparent through the way they relate to God. Each brings a sacrifice, but Abel's is accepted and Cain's is not. Now, what's the difference between the sacrifices? Why is it that Abel can slay a lamb, and this is okay, but Abel brings vegetables to God, and this is not okay? Now, I think I have an understanding here. I wouldn't have wanted to eat the vegetables either. I'd much rather the meat. There's something happening here. Well, we have to be very careful. There are hints in the Scripture, but they're not specifically given to us in statements, but they're hints in the Scripture. What is the difference between sacrifice here and the giving of the works of the hand by Cain? Listen to what Hebrews 11.4 says. By faith. Huh. Faith. All of a sudden you see a distinction here. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. So you see, Abel's worship was of faith, whereas Cain's was not. How do we know? Faith in what? Well, you see, when we go back, God's way of salvation, there is a hint where that God's way of salvation is through the shedding of blood. Where do we see that? Genesis what? Three what? 21. The man and the woman hid themselves and covered themselves with fig leaves. Do you remember that? They sold leaves together. Do you remember that? But God came and looking for them, and after delivering the curse, what does he do in verse 21 of chapter 3? He covers them with the skin of an animal. Anybody who's ever seen this or ever, anybody who's ever done it know that when you skin an animal, what happens? There's death and there's shedding of blood involved. An innocent dies. Please remember some of these verses. Please remember Genesis 3.21, the first time blood is shed for the covering of Adam and Eve, for the covering of their sin. So there's something in this, <clears throat> and apparently both boys know this, but and Abel does it this way, but some kind of way, and for some reason, Cain does it. Now, there is some supposition in this, but I think we're at least on some safe ground to say that in some way, Cain knew it, but he didn't do it for whatever reason. All the Bible says is, Abel had faith, Cain didn't. Faith in what? Faith in God's revelation of himself and of his way of salvation. In 3.7, Adam and Eve covered themselves with fig leaves, remember, but in 3.21, God covered them with the skin of an innocent animal, thus establishing the necessity of bloodshedding. 
Abel's sacrifice, his offering, his worship of God, his obedience was according to the type that God had established and Cain's was according to his own way. And what Proverbs 14, 12 says, there is a way that seems what? Righteous or right to a man, but the ends of it is death. It, I, I think it's okay if I do this. I think it'll be all right if I go over here. I think it'll be fine if I do some drinking. I think it'll be okay if I watch this movie. That, eh. I think it'll be, they, these things seem right to us, right? I mean, we certainly have more relaxed standards today than we used to have. Isn't it better that we are more relaxed today? Isn't God just kind of chilling out better today? I mean, why was he so that way years ago? But today, God is more enlightened. I mean, it's a modern world. So it's going to be okay if we do this, go there, and say these things, and wear this, and what. It's going to be okay. It, it, it seems right. What does the Bible say? Proverbs 14, 12. What does it say? It's death. It brings death. Church, God's personal righteousness and his way of righteousness in us is the same as it has always been, always will be the same, never varying. What is changing in the church is a diminishing of our understanding or appreciation or acceptance of his righteousness and a bowing and bending and submission to the ways of the seed of the serpent through the God of this world. And it is infecting and debilitating. You know what debilitate means? Weakening. It's enervating the church. And you wonder why the church today is almost like a palsied person who can't walk well? It's because of our righteousness, uh, God's righteousness in us is not being believed and embraced against whatever the world says because we're conforming and bowing and going with what the world says. Oh, don't think I'm radical. I am not radical at all. God is radical. You ever listen to some of the words of Jesus? This man is absolutely radical. I, I do believe that if this man were here in most churches today, he'd be put out. Oh, I'm serious about that. I really mean it. Paul the apostle would have been run out of town. He'd have been run out of town. You telling me I can't do this. You telling me I can't. You telling me that's wrong. That... Be run out of town. He'd be run out of town. I'd rather be run out of town than run out of the kingdom of God. Let us be a people who stand for righteousness. Let us be a people who look at my life, your life, our lives together, and begin to boldly ask God, what in my life is unrighteous? And God will begin to show it. And let's have the integrity and the honor and the strength of the Holy Spirit to begin to deal with it, right? No matter what the world says and what other Christians say, and it's okay to do that, okay to go there. It doesn't matter about that. A little bit of this won't hurt. All of that is satanic thought. God never thinks and never conveys his information that way. Never does. Where am I in my notes? <clears throat> ah. So what happens? Cain refuses to repent and obey, and what does he do? He kills his brother. In 9 to 24, verses 9 to 24, the Lord confronts Cain. Where's Abel? I mean, 
has God fallen off a rock? I mean, don't we see that in Genesis? When the Lord walked in the evening, in the cool of the evening, remember? In verse 6, hey, Adam and Eve, where y'all, where y'all at, man? Where y'all at? He's eliciting a confession. Where's your brother? Of course, Cain does the same thing as Adam did in 312, remember? Am I my brother's keeper? I mean, you know, he's trying to defend himself. It's the woman. Do you remember that? It's the woman. He's defending himself. How often do we do this? Yeah, but, yeah, but he said, yeah, but they're doing It's Satan. Satan. Anytime you're defending your sin, what is it? Who is it? Satan. And so the Lord confronts Cain, Cain's defense, and God's judgment is, uh, is listed there, resulting in his departure from the presence of the Lord. He departed from the presence of the Lord. The fruit of Cain's disobedience, his line is marked by independence and finally by death. James 1.15 says, go ahead and do it. Sin seems nice, man, but once it gets in there and it brings forth the fruit, what is that? It's death. Cain is a murderer, but whereas Cain did experience some remorse, oh, this is too great for me to bear, at least he experiences some. The fifth from Cain, which is Lamech, the fifth one from Cain in verse 23, is now boasting about his ability to kill and to murder. I've killed a man. So you see the descendants, descending rather, activity of man as he becomes corrupt and completely controlled by sin. But alongside of the line of Cain is a line of Seth. We're introduced to Seth right at the end of chapter 4 and right in the beginning of chapter 3, verse 3. In contrast to Cain, we are introduced to the line of Seth. He's of the seed of the woman. Abel was going to be of the seed of the woman. Satan opposes. God allows an opposition to kill Abel, and then he raises up Seth. You know, if you look at Romans 5.20, what does it say? At the end of the verse there, it would say, sin really is abounding man it looks like sin is having a day but what grace over abounds over sin Abel is dead we can imagine that the Satan thinks I've done it God raises up another man never is God's purpose thwarted it never will be Never will be. Please keep this in your mind about God's work in your own life and about God's work in your family's life. So Seth is born. In contrast to Cain, we are introduced to the line of Seth, a line that is completely different in its relationship to God. A line marked by righteousness. I did not say a line that has no sin in it, no people who need to repent. But its relationship and walk with God is absolutely the opposite as that line of Cain. Why is this emphasized so much? Because right in the beginning of the Bible, God is telling us that in this world, you will either in one line or the other. And for his people, we need to be very aware of who God's people are and who are the people that are opposed to God. And we need to be very careful how we relate to the unsaved. We need to be very careful how we relate to them. I don't say don't relate to them, obviously, but we need to be careful how we do it and what we're doing. Notice the way Seth is introduced in 5.3. When Adam had lived 130 years 
in 5-3 of Genesis. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son. What words do you see there? In his likeness after his image and named him Seth. Now, what does that tell you? Where have you heard in his likeness after his image? 126. What immediately is God telling you in the birth of Seth? This is a man of my purpose through whom I'm going to bring back to fruition and completion and culmination my purpose of 126. So God is saying in this man, this is what's going on. Every believer has this stamped on them. We are those who are after his image according to his likeness, aren't we? I am, are you? Why? Because of the Holy Spirit's work. We are all of God's image and according to his likeness. We are 126 people. We are Genesis 126 people. So this is how he said to be. You see, here is echoed God's purpose. There's an echo here that through his line will come the seed of the woman. So we hear that echo or almost that flat-out statement of 126 in Seth. In contrast to Seth's line, uh, Cain's line, Seth is marked by righteousness. And this righteousness is there implicitly, but it is there accentuated in the birth of Enoch. In verse 21, when, in verse, chapter 5, verse 21, when Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Remember Methuselah? Enoch walked with God. Now look, walked with God, his manner of life. The manner of life of the seed of the woman will be their walk with God. The manner of life of the seed of the serpent will be their walk opposed to God. Two different kinds of life. Two different kinds of walk, rather. Two different ways of life. One walking in accordance with God in an agreement. The other walking in opposition. Enoch is walking with God. An example of the seed of the woman, God's image and God's righteousness prevailing in this people moving his purpose forward. He walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Isn't it interesting? How many days in a year? 365. Isn't that an interesting thought? And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Well, what does that mean? Well, listen to Hebrews 11.5. By faith, again, faith. Remember the same by faith in Abel. By faith, Abel. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended, commended as having pleased God. What does this mean? It means that God's way of recovering his intention will be through a people who trust and obey him. And we will see how God works that out in the pages of the Old Testament because that people become the people of God known as the nation of Israel. And when this work of God bringing forth the seed of the woman, because the seed is of a nation and also the seed is about a man. It's a play on words which we'll see in Galatians chapter 3 from Paul. It's a play on words. It's a double use of the word. It means a whole group of people. It also is a collective noun, could meaning, and it is meaning one person. And so this nation, through this nation, prophesying and moving 
through generation and generation and narrowing and narrowing and narrowing until we get to a particular family and a particular branch of that family, one man will come. One man who will be the exact image, Hebrews 1, 3, of the invisible God, who will be in himself the perfection of the image and the likeness of God. And that man will restore all things back to God. And in that man, his people whom he redeems will become the people of God, bearing the image and likeness of God forever in the new heaven and the new earth. That's what's going on here. That's what God is moving toward. That's how we need to see our Bible. So that in this man, the people who trust and obey him, through whom he will bring forth the man of his exact image. Do we see this? Are we beginning to see this Bible differently and hopefully more expansively? The story of God recovering his initial purpose of creation. You see, the rest of chapter 5 records the line of Seth all the way to Noah. It ends with the line of Noah. I mean, uh, with the introduction of Noah. Now, what do we learn from these examples? We learn this, as we've already said. All humanity is divided into two families. What are they? The seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Today, what are those two families? The church and those who are not of the church. Those are the two families upon the earth. During the days of Israel, it was Israel and the Gentiles, Gentiles meaning anybody who was not of the household of Israel. Today it's the church and those who are not of the church. Don't be fooled. Those who are not in the church of Jesus Christ are of the seed of the serpent and are not the people of God. The people of, the God, of God, the seed of the woman, are the members of the true church of the Lord Jesus. And when we say the church, we don't mean members of a particular local church, although the members of the church of Jesus Christ are to be in the local church. We're talking about the body of Christ, the temple of God on earth. You see, this is what Jesus was talking about in John 39 through 44. Remember, he was talking to the Pharisees, talking about children of Abraham, and they said, hey, 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 we children of Abraham. And Jesus flatly, you see, Jesus would not have been popular today. He would have been arrested, and he would have been sued, and he would have been losing all of his contacts and all of those who supported him and businesses that were with him, he would have lost it all because he, here he is telling the religious leaders what? You are of your father the devil. He was a liar from the beginning, the father of lies. Jesus is pretty direct. If we said that or came up with that kind of thing, we would be accused of not being filled with grace. Be kind, brother. Jesus is being kind here. He's being kind. He's speaking the truth in love. Does that mean we confront everybody and say, hey, you're your father of the devil, you're going to hell? It may or may not mean that, depending on how we're led by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is the one who has to tell us how to do this, not our own dispositions. This is what the Apostle John was warning about in 2.15, 1 John 2.15. He said, don't love the world. Why? Because the world is the domain and the rule of Satan. Don't love it. Don't love it. Be careful of it. For next week, Let's compare the similarities. We're going to go into the line of Noah. I want you to look one, Genesis 1 to 2 and compare the similarities with 8 through 9. Look at the promises. Look at the statements. Look at what God is doing. Look at what he's redoing in those chapters as we come back next week to move along in chapter 6 of Genesis. Thank you so much.